2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an associate professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Scott Cunningham, professor of economics at Baylor University. He's just published a new textbook with Yale University Press. It's called Causal Inference, the Mixtape. So you might think it's a little bit weird to talk about a textbook um, on a podcast, and maybe you're starting to think you should skip this episode and get back to that true crime podcast you've been following, which is a little bit more exciting. But, but stick with us for a minute and see how it goes. Um, the book itself, of course, gives you lots of equations and statistical uh, code, but we're going to stay at a high level and talk about um, the big points of like what causal inference means, why it needs its own textbook, um, some of the intuition behind how these techniques work, um, and some examples of what we as social scientists have learned from them. Um, also, you, as you may have heard, the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics was recently awarded to three experts in this area. So this is another chance to uh, learn what all the excitement is about. So, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Um, thanks, now, Peter. I think yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I think everyone knows that that correlation doesn't imply causation. I mean, you probably learned that even you know, back in elementary school in some basic science class. Um, and maybe people have also heard that randomized controlled experiments are, you know, the so-called gold standard if you want to uh, really link a cause with an effect. Um, but so what is causal inference? Why aren't experiments enough to, to get the causal inferences we need?
1: That's great. Uh, so so causal inference is, um, is kind of more of like a contemporary uh, phrase that kind of groups together uh, a, a particular attempt at... Um, Uh, Getting those estimates of causal effects, you could think that, you know, causal inference is actually maybe really, really old because humans have been interested in trying to understand causal effects for a long, long time. So when you say something causal inference, it, it really is describing more of like a school of thought that's emerged over the last 40 years or depending on how you want to draw it maybe longer and that's where the Nobel Prize winners are kind of connected with that and causal inference kind of starts from a so that 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 approach it's it starts with a basic uh, uh, philosophical um, conception of causality and it's um, it's an idea called uh, counterfactuals so so let's say that I want to know, Uh, you know, the, the effect of getting a uh, college degree uh, on my wages, then uh, under the counterfactual tradition, if you want to call it that uh, to know what the causal effect is of that college education on my wages, I would need to know my wages in a world where I got a college degree. So say 2021 Scott Cunningham, he's got a bachelor's degree, observe my wages And then I would have to know my wages, Scott Cunningham, 2021, same point in time, but in a world where everything else is the same, except that I did not get a college degree. And so, you know, only only one of those things actually happened. And that's fine. That that the point of this isn't just to kind of tell stories the the point of this is to say, at philosophically, scientifically, we think that that is the most uh, that that is the correct way or that that is the consensus amongst philosophers of science and, Zion, and scientists and social scientists. That is the consensus of how we are going to approach this idea of causality. We're going to say that a causal effect is the difference between two states of the world, one where something did happen look at the outcome one where that that thing did not happen for the same units and that when you that def-
2: and how do we compare yeah how do we compare reality to this fantasy land that that never happened
1: exactly that's well and so th- that when it, it's funny that when you when you go through and you start with a counterfactual definition of causality it's very pessimistic because basically what it says is that you can't know any causal effects because you can never know Uh, The counterfactuals, I'll never know what my wages would have been had I not gotten a college degree because the only thing I did do was get a college degree. So if I have to know both to know a causal effect, then I'm in trouble. But what's interesting is that that notation like that, that mathematical representation of the problem actually offered the solutions because what it did was it began to show that things like with groups of units You you couldn't do it for the individuals, you couldn't do it for Scott, but if I had groups of units and I randomly assigned uh, college, well then actually you could show it very easily that the differences between the groups that got the college degree and the groups that didn't, uh, that they would be equivalent on average in every single way except that one of them got a college degree and that difference in wages between the two groups you could actually make a convincing statement or you you could, you could, trust that the difference in wages was because of the college degree. You could trust that the differences in the groups actually was the causal effect of college. And so it was really kind of an important thing uh, in my reading of it. We've always had people, scientists were running experiments for a long, long time. It, it was in the early 20th century that they discovered the importance of physical randomization. That was really the breakthrough uh, from the perspective of causal inference, is that physical randomization had the ability to identify these causal effects, not just having a control group, but having a randomized control group. Well, the that's great, and that's always true. But the problem is that in a lot of the social sciences, political science, uh, um economics in particular, epidemiology, uh, and even in some of the physical sciences, astronomy, you can't really run a lot of physically randomized experiments. like we don't randomly assign people into college itself. We don't randomly assign countries into uh, you know different kinds of political regimes, right? like they they tend mm-hmm. to be happening but that like they happen but we're not randomly doing it. And yet they're very, very important. They're extremely, extremely important questions to know, you know, what is the effect of college on earnings and what is the effect of, you know, some sort of political regime or some sort of pop sub pop public policy. So what happened is that, you know, causal inference is just simply a set of tools that try to exploit that basic idea of randomization, uh, they try to they, they try to, to 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 look for naturally occurring randomization in the world and then use that to 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 back out those con, the those estimates uh, about whether or not things are uh, could be attributed to college or could be attributed To something else and so causal inference was essentially the the sort of a a building on top of that basic foundation of that of what physical randomization does for us and then begins to kind of move incrementally away from it while still sort of maintaining that basic structure about thinking about it in terms of counterfactuals and how to get proper counterfactuals estimated
2: Okay. Well, that's a great intro just at the, at the very high level. So why don't you just, uh, why don't you plunge in and uh, give us an example of, uh, of a major study that illustrates like one of these techniques in action and sort of to give a sense of like how, how it works.
1: Sure. So uh, let's see. So uh, I have a paper um, where uh, uh, with Manisha Shaw, and uh uh one of my areas uh have research has historically been uh uh sex work and uh, there was a i there was a uh, an event that happened in Rhode Island uh, uh Rhode Island in 1980 had tried to update its laws um, about sex work and they were trying to make uh punishment of of street prostitution more efficient and so they went through and they rewrote their laws but in the process of making their laws very focused on street prostitution they accidentally legalized indoor prostitution they basically gutted this entire section of the law and then took out all the parts that were general prohibitions and then just made it specific about street prostitution didn't really matter uh, because for most of arrests have historically been on street prostitution, so it didn't really affect arresting. It also didn't appear to be that anybody knew they did it. There's no record of uh, broad knowledge that it had even happened that they knew that it had happened, uh, and it never really got challenged. But then in the late '90s and early 2000s, there was a wave of of Korean immigration into uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And accompanied with it was uh, uh, certain individuals that were starting uh, Asian massage parlors that would provide illicit sex work. And they began to be arrested uh, by the Providence police for uh, prostitution, but they were arresting them for violating street prostitution. And uh, it went to a judge in 2003 and a judge ruled that. Surprisingly, the state did not have any laws prohibiting prostitution. They just had laws prohibiting street prostitution. And at that point in 2003, police were not, they were no longer allowed or able to arrest any indoor prostitution situation. And so from -hmm. 2003, uh, there was a, uh, uh, from 2003 to 2009, there was legalized indoor prostitution. So Manisha and I, uh learned about it and we we took advantage so this is a typical kind of causal inference thing it, it's as though there was an experiment run it was as though there was a quasi random uh assignment of legalized sex work to rhode island in 2003 because it, ha- it didn't happen for any reasons that were related to uh like votes it didn't ha- it didn't happen because of general trends uh you know it wasn't like there was growing you know, desire for legalization, it was just literally uh, a judge's discretion as she interpreted the the law.
2: Right. And- so this just to clarify that for the audience. So like, you could think of like, sometimes people, uh, I actually was talking about this with my students in a class, sometimes people will refer to something as experiment, like California is experimenting with legalizing marijuana or some, you know, other state may experimenting with decriminalizing sex work or something else. But of course, that kind of experiment is not an experiment in this randomization sense because the whole reason that place is willing to do it is because of changing social attitudes or something else that's going on that made them willing to like actively make the change so if any human is actually deliberately making a choice to make the change then you no longer have have something that you can really call uh an experiment
1: exactly in in the sense we're looking at randomized experiment Yeah. yeah exactly right you you uh And that's kind of actually interesting what you saw. You can see that explicitly in that mathematical notation of counterfactuals, like I was saying. It's really, if you're a social scientist, you can immediately see why this is going to be a problem when you're using laws. Which is, um, uh, if ever there is a change in a law that is happening for reasons that are related to the expected gains from the law, it will basically... You know, create problems for the experiment. And so um, uh, and usually that's what is happening. You know, usually, you know, uh, places are changing their laws for reasons that are directly related to what they think is going to happen. Nobody's flipping, mm-hmm. coin. nobody's flipping coins, you know, with minimum wage laws. And so. Yeah. Um, so to try to find these situations where it really is is disconnected from the expected gains from it are really valuable because what they do is they allow you maybe sometimes for the first time to even answer that, even, even offer a credible attempt at an answer for those questions. And so Manisha and I, uh, we spent a long time. We interviewed a ton of people in Rhode Island, um, in the police department, um, uh, in, um, Hospitals, uh, working for various groups parts parts around the city, try to understand what's going on. Uh, collected tons and tons of data and just used it to study the impact that it was having on sexually transmitted infections and violence against women, as well as entry into the market. And uh, you know what we found was that uh, against common beliefs, we found that the the legalization caused Uh, violence against women to go down, and we found STDs to go down. But the the challenge is still, you always still have to find a comparison group. And ultimately, what is interesting about causal inference, in some ways, it's really, really simple. It's always really, really simple, because the the fundamental definition of causality is really, really simple. It is just a comparison between you and your counterfactual. So that's all the causal effect ever was. It was always just you know what was the causal effect of college on earnings? Compare me to myself in a different reality. But so that also means that the solution is going to be kind of is going to have simple forms. It's just going to mean that you're going to have to have a credible estimate of who my counterfactual is going to be. Who is my stand-in Scott Cunningham going to be? Because that Scott Cunningham uh, or that Rhode Island doesn't exist. That Rhode Island. In uh, after 2003, had the judge not made that decision, that that Rhode Island is gone, and it, it does not exist. So you so just
2: was- to clarify the setup of this particular uh, study. You're saying that basically before 2003, it was illegal because everyone everyone involved, even though maybe on paper interpreted the right way, it was legal, but but in practice, uh, police were able to arrest people and the the women and men working in this business. Uh, all uh, assumed that it was illegal, just like it had always been. And and like it is everywhere else. But just when this judge made the decision that all of a sudden kind of a light bulb went off and like, everyone's like, okay, now it's legal.
1: You can't do anything to me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so one of the methods in causal. So, so without physical randomization, all these statisticians and econometricians and social scientists had to essentially create alternative, you know, methods that function equivalently like randomization to eliminate those those underlying uh, contaminating bias problems that come from using uh, you know stand-ins that aren't you know randomized And so we used a method that does that what it did was it basically found a group of states that looked just like Rhode Island over a 20- year period of time year to year in terms of violence and STDs uh, that mapped it year to year. So like, you know, their, their, their average violence rates, their average arrest rates, their val- their average STD rates. We found a weighted average of other states that look just like it. Um,
2: it was why, a- why a group of states rather than just like find one matched state?
1: Well, typically, you, you know, typically actually you, you'll never find a single state that functions, uh, all that well. Uh, as a stand in, you know, so you and I, we, we might even be twins, but over the course of our life, uh, you know, our wages might, you know, you got a, a job one summer waiting tables and that's the summer I decided to, uh, you know, take take an extra class at school. And so any one person oftentimes doesn't function very well as a perfect match, but lots of times uh, groups can because the errors okay. The errors of any one person kind of starts to cancel out a little bit, and so the groups will be a little bit more stable. And so, uh, so, so this method that we use called it was two two methods, uh, one called synthetic control and one called difference in differences. It basically they both find a weighted average of states that are what one of them just says, take all states and be a weighted average. That's difference in differences. And the other one says, find the best states that look just like Rhode Island. It lets a computer find who they are, finds exactly what those weights needs to be optimally and then groups them together and then just tracks them over time and then tracks Rhode Island over time. And the difference uh, is meant to measure the causal effect. And it's funny when you say it out loud. You, you look at the the actual statistical technique, and it's very intimidating. And uh, all of these things, once you can kind of wrap break them down, aren't nearly as intimidating as they seem at first glance. It's it's real. Lots of times, the methods are versions of trying to find weighted averages of other units. It's just that sometimes those methods are uh, the, the, the weights correspond to certain groups, uh, of people and others. But anyway, we, that's what we did in this one. And that's a good example. I think that is a good example of one where you're never going to randomly assign legalized sex work. You're never going to randomly assign, uh, you're never, you're not going to randomly assign Medicare. You're not going to randomly assign social security. And yet these are really, you know, very, very important questions for the sheer, you know, importance of how many people's lives depend on them for good or for bad.
2: Right. Cause even if you, even if you say, had some groundswell of support for say legalizing sex work, you'd do it for the whole state. You'd, you'd we would yeah, just exactly. pick like we're going to do these towns and not these towns or these states and not exactly. these states.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And lots of times there's winners and there's losers and things. And so trying to figure out, you know, like, Things like average effects and uh, is important, and if you can target policies where some of those negative effects aren't going to those groups of people that are being harmed by it, you know that those are all obviously more efficient and more and more equitable too. And so, you know, trying to uh, answer these questions in the social sciences when you can't run these physically physical experiments, physically randomized experiments, is is really important. So you mentioned the difference in
2: differences, um, as one of the, um, techniques used here. So why don't you just to, to explain to people more about that? Like, tell us why, like, so let's say, you know, my naive thing would be like, okay, well, sex work was illegal up until I think you said 2003. And then after that it was legal. So let's just look at like, does, you know, violence against women go down? Right. Why can't you do that? Yeah.
1: So 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 let's say that there's a surge of uh, COVID that's happening in uh, you know uh, uh, in the United States, right? Surge of COVID happening in the United States. COVID mortality happening in the United States growing, and then uh, there is in California a mask mandate that's imposed, right? And if you were to look at the average uh, mortality before the mandate in California and compare it to average mortality in California after it it will absolutely be that after the mandate uh, mortality is higher because it's on an upward swing. And that's the whole reason that they got the mandate in the first place is because it was growing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know what you typically can't do in these kind of like before and after simple differences is the things that you need to be true in order to do those simple differences between, you know, like forecasting kind of style differences, is you need for there to be no time dynamics whatsoever. Uh, there can't be any underlying time trends that are happening. Uh, uh, otherwise, you're to get an unbiased estimate. Otherwise, the the treatment in the post period is just all tangled up with that with those time trends. And so, what you're what you're, and sometimes that's fine. Sometimes you know, with highly disaggregated data, high frequency data, I think you can find before and afters that are very convincing. And I think, like with a lot of the data that we had during COVID, you know, like uh, data showing um, uh, things like you know the the impact that COVID mortality had, uh, that 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 distancing rules had on people, uh, you know, move moving around and being in, you know. M- basically firm going to restaurants and things like that. If we saw pings from cell phones, that, that seemed to happen pretty quickly. And It was really easy to kind of say, I do think there was a causal effect because those, those time elements were sort of almost being eliminated, but just because we were, we're tracking down to the seconds, but like, so that's kind
2: um, of this discontinuity thing, right? So if you, if we yeah. all start putting on masks and that reduces the rate of spread, whatever effect that is going to have is going to take, you know, a week or two to play out. Whereas you're saying, if you actually have like the cell phone data and like, here's the day before the lockdown or the mask mandate, and here's the day after, and you can see yeah. huge changes in behavior, you know, that wasn't just the trend, exactly. you know, that probably was just that day. Right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so with like very high frequency, they call it high frequency data or disaggregated data by time and things like that. I think a lot of those before and afters actually become almost like trivially, obviously causal. You know, like there's just no other explanation than that. You know, the second they put the mask mandate on and you saw that immediately, then you cause it. But sometimes the the problem with that is that not everything happens immediately. You know, so and and that's kind of the problem is that some stuff happens slow. Adoption happens slow. Vaccines happen slow throughout the state. And so you can't, you don't really have a sharp discontinuity that you can exploit. And, um, so, uh, so then what do you do? Well, so what you're doing in these difference in differences, uh, what are called research designs, you know, the, the, they're basically difference in differences. The way to think about differences in differences is think of it as an alternative to physical randomization. That's the, the, in my mind, I kind of think about all these things as like, uh, separate ways of doing an experiment that does not use always physical randomization. Some of them do, but not all of them do. So difference in differences will not use physical randomization in order to address those biases. It's going to use something else. It's going to use something called parallel trends. And parallel trends is a uh, uh, a belief that you have found a group of states or cities that were trending over time uh, in exactly the same way as your treatment state would have trended had they not gotten the law. So if you're wanting to know, for instance, if you're wanting to know the effect of um, shelters in place on COVID mortality, and let's say that everybody's adopting, to make it simple, let's say that, you know, people are uh, uh, um, adopting, Shelters in place at two different times of the year. Ones in March and ones in November. All right, just to make it simple. But and um, and we've got you know cholera. I mean, we've got COVID mortality. So what what you're doing with uh, difference and differences is you're essentially using you're using um, a set of states that are not treated with the the mask mandate as your control group. But but it's more like you're using it as a control group in their change over time. So the, the control is actually the change over time for those states whose change over time is exactly equal to the change over time that would have happened in California had California not had a mandate. So let's say that Let's say it's Texas. Let's say that the Texas mortality would have gone up by 100. Uh, but let's say Texas does not get a let's say Texas does not get a mask mandate. And over this period of time that we're looking at, our mortality goes up by 100. And California had California not gotten its mandate. If it would have also gone up by 100, then Texas is a great uh, counterfactual. Because it it is, they both have a parallel trend. They both are going up by hundred.
2: So you just kind of subtract out that hundred to try to figure yeah, out what the leftover. Exactly. You
1: just is you specific. just subtract, essentially you just try subtract. It's a ver, it's a version of that. You're just gonna try. You're just gonna subtract out that one hundred, and you're gonna basically say, well, what happened in California? If I take that one hundred and I start at the starting point for Texas and I go up by hundred. That's what would have happened in Texas, in California. What actually happened in California is this. And so the difference between that projected counterfactual for California using our Texas control group, uh, the difference between what did happen in California and what would have happened in California using Texas's trend is the causal effect. And so. And so, you know, a lot of the statistical models, no matter how no matter how sophisticated they get of this class of approaches that are grouped as difference and differences, when you go deep inside the engine of them, that's what's in every one of their engines. Every one of their engines has a parallel trend spark plug driving the whole thing. And that's parallel trend spark plug. If you believe it's true, If you believe if you can provide some evidence that it is believable and what usually people will do is they'll they'll track how Texas and California's trends were like before. Were they always tracking before just up to when the mask mandate happened in California? If they were before, people oftentimes feel a little comfortable using Texas as the control group, as the estimated counterfactual. If they weren't. Then they don't. And see, you can sort of see here how a lot of these methods, they've been really used a ton during COVID. They have been used extensively in COVID. So there's like branches of work by scientists during COVID. There's clearly the, the biologists and the chemists who are working on vaccines and things of that nature. There's um, epidemiologists that are trying to understand, uh, you know, the, the, the population dynamics. Of the spread of disease, and then there's the social scientists who have been trying to evaluate the not the not necessarily the vaccine, although the, so, some people have been studying the vaccine too, because um, that has been you know politically uh, a culture war kind of thing where people don't always agree. But they're also wanting to know things like: Are the mandates working? Are uh, these these uh, you know, rallies? Are they? Are the you know these political rallies? Are they causing uh, more spread or not? And all these kinds of questions. These are hugely important questions, right? Like if, if political rallies are are causing COVID to spread and in turn causing uh, uh, mortality to rise, you can imagine the the challenges that uh, are are consti- almost like constitutional kinds of challenges because we protect. Uh, we, we have amendments that protect getting together in, in, in groups to talk, to, to sort of meet and discuss you know, our views. And if that's killing people, uh, we have a lot of hard questions we have to answer. So, all throughout this, the, the difference in differences has been one of the most commonly used program evaluation methods to evaluate tons of stuff that has been going on, policies and rallies and things like that.
2: So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, epidemiologists, and it does seem like, you know, certainly for things like disease transmission, that's kind of their area. So how do they um, divide, you know, the the labor between us and them? And, and do they use the same methodology, us by being social scientists, where we think of like humans as the main thing versus like for them? I don't know how they think. I don't actually know how they class themselves. I think they kind of affiliate themselves more with the medical scientists in, in some respects, but they are studying social systems. So right. like, how do those differ?
1: Sure. So uh, it's re- it's funny that you asked that. I didn't even uh, think to mention this. It's, it, the epidemiologists are actually the ones that invented difference and in differences. It was actually invented in the 19th century by the father of epidemiology, John Snow uh, who, uh, used, he invented a difference in differences method, to to provide evidence that, uh, cholera was being spread through the Thames river, um, and not via the air. Cholera is a, is a waterborne, uh, uh, disease. And so, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because they, uh, it's deep, deep, deep in their, uh, their, their DNA to, to sort of approach things this way, because as you mentioned, they're not just uh, a biological kind of science. They're a, they're a social systems science, of the interaction of, of uh, disease and, and human beings living together. And so many of their their theories kind of do map on, you know, biological processes with social interactions. So the, the, the work by the epidemiologists, I think, we have never, uh, I think uh, the social sciences have never been, had more close interaction, uh, you know, like between economics and epidemiology than they have right now. Um, we're in, we're like in regular interaction with each other. Um, uh, sometimes there's collaborations. Uh, there seems to be, you know, uh, some listening to each other and con- and talking to each other, reading each other's papers, arguing with each other. Um, so uh, I know that there is um, that that there is a lot of uh, you know collaboration in a, in a big sense. We all have different journals, and we and each of the journals has different sort of standards in terms of like you know whether they tend to like certain kinds of methods over others um so but actually in in both epidemiology and in the social the broader social sciences it's all that same counterfactual based reasoning so a lot of the basic core statistical concepts and those things of that nature they're the same a lot of the same methods are the same Uh, and um so I think right now there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, mutual interest in the same questions and mutual interest in value in the same policies. But I, I haven't really followed in detail a lot of the COVID papers. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's too many to follow. So I don't know exactly where all of it sits, what, what, what it would be considered the best that's come out of the epidemiology program evaluation at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure. Okay, yeah,
2: no, it's great that yeah it has been uh, definitely a lot. We've all, I mean, whether the social scientists or even just ordinary people, everyone's kind of an amateur epidemiologist right now. So yeah. hopefully, we're all learning something from them. And uh, I think there's been some some territoriality at some points, but yeah. uh, some hopefully also some some mutual exchange and uh, and learning among specialists who are kind of discovering similar things or using similar tools in in, in slightly different settings.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah. another, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny if you if you think that there is returns to experience and there's returns to learning stuff, then obviously epidemiologists know a ton about disease. And obviously, uh, you know, other social scientists, uh, economists and sociologists, and political scientists know a ton about uh, evaluating public policy. And so uh, it's bound to be uh, as we both try to study the same thing at the same point in time. It's bound to be kind of contentious, you know, when you think about it, because, uh, you know, we we all have sort of specialized in our comparative advantage. And yet this particular moment uh, has all of us working on the same thing. And so there is probably going to be some territorialism and there's going to be like intense criticisms of one another because. You know there'll be uh, both obvious mistakes and just very very deep disagreements with each other over how mm-hmm. we're approaching things, and I guess it just gets settled out you know in time with with who ends up you know who who what the consensus is about who's been right or wrong.
2: Right, and I'm sure there'll be yeah uh, usually you know some kind of yeah. Convergence in 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 some respects. Um. So yeah, actually, so let me ask you another question I had about um. Also, kind of about cross disciplinary exchange. Um. You know, economists generally use a lot of software and know yeah. a little bit of programming, but don't tend to ing- intellectually engage directly with computer scientists. We have a right. whole chapter in your book devoted to discussing ideas by the computer scientist Judea Pearl. So, what yeah. what is that about? Why did you feel like that was necessary? And, yeah. And what was coming from that?
1: Well, Euda Pearl is actually, uh, you know, pro- probably one of the most important uh, bo- bordering on being a philosopher almost. I mean, he's one of the most important uh, people in the history of causal inference, in the, in the history of the entire field of it. He just uh, entered into it through a back door uh, of artificial intelligence, and uh, he started out uh, in artificial intelligence. Uh, trying to build, you know, systems for for these, uh, you know, systems to think, and uh, m- to to sort of be a, a thinking system requires making causal conclusions all the time. You know, uh, so so you 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 have to make causal deductions constantly. You know, if you see a door, you know that the doorknob, uh, you know what it is, you recognize it, and you know that when you turn doorknobs, doors become unlocked right and then you can pull on them and there's all kinds of causal deductions that you're having to make both kind of prediction stuff and then also classifying and then but then making causal predictions and um and you're not going to be able to have a robot constantly running randomized experiments and so uh pearl uh with some of his students and co-authors developed an entire calculus essentially an entire branch of mathematics uh that gave a kind of probabilistic uh, framework for doing causal inference. And it actually does map directly onto that counterfactual tradition. And so it fits directly into the traditional work that these three, uh, economy, th- these three economists won the Nobel Prize for. David Carr, Josh Angrist, and Hino Imbins uh, is, is not in tension with them at all. Um, And so I I brought it in because that framework, you know, the book is really about doing causal inference without being able to physically randomize. And Pearl's work is absolutely essential to doing it because what it does is it shows that, you know, if you have a deep understanding of the thing that you're studying, you can use that information to actually solve a lot of those problems. those uh, bias problems uh, through carefully selecting certain type, types of approaches and uh, maybe even yeah certain types of approaches let's say become clearly suggested uh, when you have you know prior knowledge that you can bring to the problem itself. So per- Pearl was uh, uh, hugely he's a hugely important person in causal inference, and, and, he, and he actually helps show a path uh, to um, uh, show a path to how we can go about non, non-physical experiment solutions to causal problems. So... I haven't. I haven't had
2: time to read his work closely, aside from uh, just reading your chapter and then hearing discussions of it by economists. I guess my sense from from that and from you know a little bit of uh, you know very shallow Twitter discussion is he seems to think that the economists are doing everything wrong, including yeah. the Nobel Prize winners, yes. and the Nobel Prize winners seem to think that he's actually got this whole complicated thing that he's developed, but it doesn't really add anything. That much to what they're doing, right. so so help me. So you you just made it sound like you know we're all collaborating in this together and, and yeah. hooray! And but that's not the perception that one gets. it. I, I, I,
1: I don't know though uh, exactly if the disagreements are always happening at the same level as it might sound at the fundamental level of like uh, identification. Th- there's a mapping back and forth between uh you know proofs that you get from this uh this potential outcomes counterfactual based theories of identification and uh and pearl's work and he discusses that and others discuss that too that the the, the there's a lot of equivalence between things where things become different is um is whether in practice I am going to need to have as much information as Pearl claims that I'm going to need to have to to identify a particular causal effect. And so Pearl Pearl seems to speak as though I can't identify any causal effect unless I have a system of equations that completely describes um, the data generating process associated with all the variables in my data. And, um, uh, and the question becomes, you know, how can I, with confidence, uh, if I find specific sources of physical randomization, if I find specific sources of physical randomization that are only focused on one thing, how, how, how believable, you know, is it? that I can focus just on that without having that full picture having already figured out. And lots of times that is where the disagreements seem to be coming in. And, um, and so sometimes when you listen really closely to the debates, um, the debates are not being had always at the, at the philosophical level that I think Pearl prefers to have the debate, um, it's usually getting down to the nitty gritty of actually doing empirical work and people that are doing the actual empirical work who have actually found true sources of physical randomization. uh, I think that they are um, saying that they are identifying causal effects, even though they have not generated a huge diagram of all the, the the relationships between all the variables in the data. And, um, and Pearl sometimes I think doesn't really engage with the, the deep specifics of an actual empirical project. He is not an actual empiricist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes I, I feel like, you know, what I would really love to see Pearl say is, Here is this paper. Here is this paper, this uh, synthetic control paper of the legalization of sex work in Rhode Island, right? Or this masking paper. Okay. What is the problem with this paper? What is the problem with this paper? Is there something wrong with this paper? Or are you making a general statement about the importance of prior knowledge in identifying causal effects? And so some of those disagreements that you see on the internet, they, they are... About half of them are like just people talking past each other. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not—they're not, they're not really engaged on the same questions. Um, now, whether or not Hito Imbens and Uta Ju- Pearl have fundamental disagreements with each other, I, I'm sure they do have fundamental disagreements with each other. Just like, but—but—but but, but it's not. Uh, I mean, lots of people in this tradition of causal inference have fundamental disagreements with each other. Jim Heckman you know another nobel prize winner has fundamental disagreements with a lot with you to pearl or, Angr- or Angris and so forth so it's not just pearl or angerson and imbens and so there there is like you know deep you know discussions about how much structure has to be brought to a question before it can be credibly answered um and i and and when you you know and on those questions i i, I don't really completely know uh, how to summarize those? Those are very complicated, deep statistical debates. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, but ultimately, I think there is more in agreement between Pearl and this group than there is in disagreement. And I I feel like sometimes uh, there's these unnecessary debates that are just going to push people from you know even being able to read each other more profitably. So I, I tend to feel like the, the disagreements just dominate all of the conversation. And there there actually is a lot more agreement. I think everybody would agree. You know, all, all you know, I think Embans would agree that, um, you know, to estimate some causal effect, I've got to make some assumptions, right? Like parallel trends. And mm-hmm. uh, where do those assumptions w- w- why should I believe those assumptions? Pearl would say, well, you believe them based on prior knowledge that you have about the way those policies were chosen. Okay. Then that's, I mean, you know, I've learned tremendously that Pearl kind of gives me the calculus, start thinking really carefully about how I'm going to go about selecting who is and who is not going to be my control groups. You know, I've got to think really carefully about how those, those laws were chosen. Um, and so I, I find them to be, you know, complimentary. And that's why I put them in the book. But I guess yeah, not. No, I can
2: see. I mean, in a sense, it sounds like maybe Pearl is, he's almost like, I mean, the, you know, the complaint at any uh at most economic seminars is that everyone wants to tell you that your results aren't really identified and, you know, you're not good enough. And it seems like he's, he's even more, maybe even more, uh, you know, putting the perfect as the enemy of the. Yeah. useful um than than the than the average uh uptight economist um yeah. but then of course the you know for for those of us who are actually trying to contribute to practical questions then it's like well is this you know well i guess maybe you know it depends on the person some people go into the seminar with guns blazing and say yeah. no i have a perfect identification strategy you know the other the other kind of weird habit economists have is talking about like things like this is plausibly exogenous which right it's kind of like there's a judgment call about whether this is really, you know, good enough to be like random, but I think it's good enough that, you know, my results probably give us some information and it kind of gets into the whole thing that like at some level, we're all kind of, you know, naive or informal Bayesians. It's like, we see a few different studies, none of which are perfect. And they kind of lead us to say, okay, maybe, you know, this is what would happen with, you know, a change in sex work, or maybe masking does or doesn't work, but it's never, it's never as conclusive as it, could be in in anyone's mathematical proof you know where you exactly knew that these assumptions are unquestionably true
1: exactly Um, exactly yeah yeah. i also kind of think you know uh it's funny the it's funny like um when, when i was younger i always just kind of thought like we were all just trying to get the truth out we all just cared about the truth but as i get older and i learn how science works it's like um uh, it's like you're always trying to convince people, you know, you're always mm-hmm. trying to like, you know, so you, so uh, Pearl, not being an economist has to convince people that uh, his work is relevant and has to be taken seriously. And he may have to take an approach to be louder than anybody in the room because he's a computer scientist that he wouldn't have to do if he was uh, an economist at MIT, you know, mm-hmm. and so, Uh, it's entirely possible that the only reason we even know about Pearl is because he has to exaggerate the, and focus on the dissimilarities because uh, he's creating all these fights all the time. That's sometimes what I wonder is this strategy of always being so aggressive, you know, maybe it's been the right one because uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading him and I'm, and I'm I'm, I'm getting angry about it and talking about it. uh, Whereas, you know, if he was just being being polite and, you know, just kind of saying, well, maybe you're right, maybe this, uh, you know, it would have never gotten past being in some, you know, computer science conference, you know, but to get it, to really get over, you know, to really get people's attention outside of the field, sometimes you have to go like really, really far. And so mm-hmm. um, maybe that's part of it. Um, I, I do think he is important and really, really important to read um and and economists don't read enough of them
2: yeah i do think i mean in a sense like people you know like i said you know from whatever in high school i at least heard the phrase causation doesn't imply or correlation doesn't imply causation and you know could think of examples that like helped me understand why that would be true um and you know but I, i do think that the it's it's great the way the field of you know the first time i learned econometrics you know it was just sort of well, you plug these different numbers into a regression and you control for this because you've got that thing. And, uh, you know, now, um, econo- you know, in in the social sciences, at least economics and political science, which I know there's much more of a the starting point is this this counterfactual of, like, what is, you know, focusing on one treatment as opposed to just, like, well, we throw a bunch of things into the regression and then we, you know, if we have enough controls, we're okay. Um, and And then I think, yeah, so it does seem like Pearl's, uh, you know, work and kind of drawing out these uh, these diagrams um, is is at a minimum very useful for for helping reinforce the intuition of like why your your counterfactual may not be counterfactual, or how sort of your your inferences could be contaminated, right? Uh, and pushing right. people to do that. Yeah, I want to bring back to and just to also reinforce um, something you said earlier, uh, which I wanted to follow up on about how when you are doing the study on uh, Rhode Island you, you went there and you talked to a bunch of people. Yeah. So let me, let me give the, just as a devil's advocate of you, like if you're an econo- economist and you're a st- stats guy, wh- you know, why not just gather the data and then analyze it? Why did you go around and spend so much time talking to people?
1: Well, I mean that, that actually is because I had read so much Pearl to be honest. I, uh, um, I was convinced that, you know, you, you really can't, Josh Angrist and Alan Krueger. They have this article. Josh still won the Nobel Prize. He, he and his co-author Alan Krueger had a paper on uh, a method called instrumental variables. And there's this part of the book of the article where they say that the best instrumental variables, which is kind of like a shorthand for uh, you know these these particular kinds of natural experiments. Let's say the, mm-hmm. the best instrumental variables come from deep institutional knowledge. So uh, they're not like you just download a data set and you just start running regressions. And, and it's like the hardest thing to teach a student, honestly, is to is to teach them that it, that, you know, that that's not the way you do research is just download a data set and start running regressions. You, you need and Pearl, I felt like taught me that, too, which was if I want to do this experiment, I have got to figure out, you know, like uh, uh, what. The market for sex work was like at that time. Why did this law get did what was the policy in 1980 actually enforced in 2003 for the first time? Right. Or is that just a story that I'm telling, you know, just because mm-hmm. some journalists said that doesn't mean it's true. And there's you, you know, you're going to provide evidence for that with with data. And but you also, I think, have to talk to people. And you have to become deeply familiar with the thing that you're studying. You just won't know. You just won't even understand your data at all. You know, you won't know what data to collect. You won't know what's garbage and what's not garbage, how to clean it up. Um, You won't know some of that basic data generating process that you need in order to make assumptions, credible assumptions to justify um, using a particular statistical model. And so, you know, for me, qualitative research is Pretty much all of my major projects um, before I was a before I went to grad school, I actually was a qualitative researcher. I did it for two years, doing uh, re- leading and re- leading and analyzing fo- focus groups and in interview in in-depth interviews. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so probably it, it's it's uh, uh, kind of like a personal like opinion that they're really, really important part of the research process because of my background, but also because of Pearl. Pearl kind of convinced me of it too. You know, uh, you've and, and so did Angris. You've got to know the thing that you're studying. So I think that that isn't just – I don't think data tells stories. Let me say it that way. I don't think data tells stories. I think I think you make data tell stories. You just hope that the, the stories it's telling are true. And um, – and to figure it out, to figure out how to make it tell stories, you have to learn, you know, where it's what its language is, and you've got to learn, you know, how to how to interact with the data in a way that that brings out the stories that are in there, but you know that are going to require prior knowledge to know how to code coach it out of the data, and so you know causal inference is really all about using prior knowledge in a way, uh, to coach that, the stories out of the data, you know, rather than just, you know, naive plots, you know, and so, uh, going and having, you know, the combination of qualitative and quantitative schools of thought, uh, you know, I I think are really, really powerful for getting at, you know, really important questions that, That nobody has the answer to
2: yeah i do think i mean even though causal inference is in a sense is you know being pushed forward and obviously developed by people who are very sophisticated statisticians um you know looking at the math of it um it's it's been great to see how also that kind of led people back to like no you've really got to understand you know you know what uh, the data scientists call domain knowledge as if it's this exotic thing right or the data generating process which is you know what people in the social sciences for centuries have said you know walk around and talk to people and make sure that what you're doing makes sense before you start uh you know throwing stuff into your computer and uh and getting that old you know garbage in garbage out kind of results exactly um so this is i think a great point to to end on so let's just say again you've got this um actually so why don't you promote everything you got so you have got this textbook that has uh just come out that um Presents a lot of these ideas in a very accessible way, yeah. um, and I think you have some other projects going on. Why don't you t- uh, just take a few minutes to, to tell everyone yeah. about that?
1: Yeah, so I have um, the textbook. There's a free version online at my website. If you Google Scott Cunningham uh, called Economics, you'll find my website and you can get to the free version. Um, it has uh, code and has programming code in three programming languages to illustrate all of the. Um, to illustrate the methods and uh, you and, and the code goes with data, so it's so it's not just uh, you know abstract code. It's all major uh, programming languages, so that you can implement these things and, and try to which ones try. do you have? Python, R, and Stata, um, and the right. the Python and R are housed on a Google Collaboratory, so you can actually run it in a browser. So it's actually hmm. actually really nice. Um, I have a sub stack that I write about I update about every two weeks uh, it's free it's just a free newsletter it's called causal inference the remix and in it I basically write explainers kind of like vox.com style explainers about econometrics causal inference and applied papers um, so that people can kind of see you know what these new method I, I part of what I C is my, the thing I would like to do more is to just be a bridge between econometrics and applied work. Um, for those people that, you know, maybe don't want to spend all the time like learning it all themselves. I, I try to do it and explain it, uh, because I'm not an econometrician. I'm just a normal person. And then, um, and then, uh, I've started a, uh, a, a new thing, uh, where I'm going to be doing online workshops, uh, um, for firm or well, actually for anybody, I'm going to be doing online workshops uh, that you can come and take a class on causal inference. And so in mid-January online, there'll be a workshop I'm doing on causal inference. It's five days, three weekends, five days, um, heavily discounted for students, pre-docs and post-docs. And it's a higher price for uh, people that are employed you know, with the hope that maybe their employer uh, or someone might pay for it. And then uh, and then there's an advanced difference in differences in synthetic control workshop in mid-February. And we're about to launch the website for that any day. But if you go to the if you go to the Substack, you can uh, you'll see when I when I post it. Um, So I'm just trying to democratize as much of this uh, causal inference methodology as possible. Because um, traditionally, data science has been very focused on prediction, uh, which is kind of like a prediction of an outcome. And uh, econometrics has been focused on a very unusually different kind of prediction, a prediction of a counterfactual so that you can estimate causal effects. And they're not the same thing. And so what I'm trying to do is just continue to pump causal inference methodology all the time. Uh, to, uh, you know, more broadly outside of the top programs and the top school and the top dep- uh, un- uh, firms, try to get it into the hands of like regular people all over the world and all throughout industry.
2: So are you getting people in industry from the uh, the more like self-described data science or, or business analytics kind of yeah. sector? Uh, yeah. That's right? to,
1: yeah, that's what I'm starting to do. So uh, I feel like, uh, you know, obviously, like places like Amazon and Google and Facebook, they have huge, huge, huge departments of people that are well versed in causal inference. But as you move further and further away from that, that core, uh, you know, the 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 level of in-house built in knowledge amongst those machine learning uh, you know, groups, it's, it's not as common. And so, uh, uh, because it's not in, it's not always in, uh, causal inference is not in a lot of the terminal masters data science programs, first of all, and, uh, uh, and, and they don't always, and they're not always hiring the the people that do have that, even if they do have PhDs, because, you know, The difference in differences and synthetic control and instrumental variables oftentimes is not taught. uh, It's not part of the toolkit for a lot of those workers. And so I'm just trying to uh, create classes online that will uh, be accessible to uh, people in industry as 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 well as students. You know, I just heavily price discriminate so that students aren't paying very much.
2: Right, no, that's really great. That uh, um, it's really interesting that you were, um, able to do that, and you know, having the textbook and all the code online for free, but still selling the print one and uh, you know, doing the doing the price discrimination. Um, discrimination is a dirty word in a lot of contexts, but yeah. uh, I think all the students who are getting uh, getting your your uh, your labor and input, which would otherwise uh, you know, fair market value would be uh, beyond what they could afford, I think will, I hope will really appreciate it. Yeah, um, I guess. And I'll just plug plug here since uh, you mentioned your thing. So, you know, go to Scott and get your exposure to this. And if you have more time and you want to do a, a two year master's program to um, learn more about how economists, um, you know, both about how we think about markets, you know, that that core theory stuff, but also uh, learn about causal inference a program where you start out with learning Python and R and concurrent uh, data science tools and machine learning, but also having that causal inference perspective in. Uh, and the economics framework incorporated from a uh, early on. That's 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 what I'm spending my time on uh, over here in San Francisco. Um, and of course, if you want to work in uh, in, the, in the digital economy, San Francisco is kind of a nice place to be. Um, especially now that we can all go out of our houses and actually meet with each other. And now the streets are you know full of uh, full of filling up again with uh, people who are who are fascinated by these topics and uh, uh, heavily involved in them. Um, so thank you so much, Scott. This has been uh, super interesting. I was going to try to keep it short, but just, uh, I couldn't help myself. And I hope uh, thanks to all the people listening um, who got this far. Uh, I hope you're as fascinated by it as I am, and will uh, uh, read Scott's book um, or uh, or join in one of his seminars. Um, and
1: uh, so we'll sign off here. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Peter. It's nice to it's nice to chat with you.